Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of One Step Beyond. This is a podcast about transformation through leadership. On our show, we have conversations with people who are creating change in business, in their community, and in their lives by choosing to lead. This is about daring to overcome barriers, push past limitations, and reshape our present and our future. As we're like, kind of like, oh my God, are we like, are things opening up? Are they closing? Life is still kind of finding a way, right? So we're in some places where the world is, you know, going back into some restriction, other places where like maybe things are going a little bit too far, we're restarting, but life is finding a way, like people are getting through it. And that's one of the things I love about working with people is people will find a way no matter what the challenge is. And we have been finding a way together. And what we got to do is I think, really take care of ourselves. You got to put your mask on first. You know, when you're like on a plane and the flight attendants say like, hey, if the masks come down, put your mask on first. We got to do that right now. It's not an act of selfishness. You're being selfless because you're taking care of yourself so that you can be there for other people. So we got to take care of ourselves through good self-care, but then we got to take care of each other. We're going to find a way and finding a way means first, you know, getting yourself stable and then looking how you can help around you. When I think about that and I think about where we're at um, in dealing with pandemic, it really makes me think about where we're at in terms of just how do we create bigger change in the world? Like society moves super fast. It seems like it, it's moving really slow, but think with like email. Email's like, I don't know, like 30 years old, but think how quickly we've gone from not having email to email being like this huge present part of our day to day to text messages to like all of these other things like God forbid, like TikTok, all of this stuff. It develops at such a rapid rate. And sometimes it feels like it's like we're just these people who've been thrust into living in this like big social world. And it's scary and we're afraid and we screw up and we do all these things. But you know what? We'll find a way. Just take care of yourself. Make sure that your like health is, is taken care of. And then once you're feeling stable, look how you can help other people. And today's guest is someone who I feel really personifies that, that approach. So we're speaking with my friend, Michelle Rakshais. Michelle works in diversity, equity, and inclusion at Amazon, and is the former president of the Women at Amazon Affinity Group. She focuses on using data to make measurable changes to the diversity of the workforce globally, and in creating an inclusive environment for employees. Prior to her role in diversity, equity, and inclusion, she managed a software engineering team and design team at Amazon. Earlier in her career, she worked at Oracle and the Syndicate, was on the board of Women in Music, and was a lecturer at King's College. Outside of work, she's a board member for the Mensa Foundation, which gives away over $200,000 annually in scholarships to college students, grants to researchers, and awards to individuals or organizations that support education. She also sits on the committee for the No Child Sleeps Outside campaign for Mary's Place, which drove 3 million in donations last year. She also hosts a web series on anitab.org and has been a speaker at events such as the Grace Hopper Celebration, Ladies Get Paid, and Geek Girl. Hosted events for Future for Us and Built by Girls and is the scholarship chair for her local Mensa chapter. So before we get started, I wanna thank our sponsors, SE Electronics. And if you haven't yet, then please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. So let's get to the episode. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. Hey, 
everyone, and welcome to the show. Um, so like I said in the intro, today's guest is someone that is a long-term friend of mine and a professional in person that I find super inspirational. So Michelle, welcome to the show. Hey, Aram. It's nice to see you again. Very nice to see you. So, you know, the, the first question I have for you is... Um, we have a ton of people come to the show from all sorts of different walks of life. We have people who come from the corporate world who, you know, you and I both come from. Uh, we have people who grew up in punk and hardcore. We have people who are artists, musicians, really like it's a pretty diverse audience and everyone comes really for one reason. It's about to, it's about hearing about leadership from people. So people who really personify that or who have, you know, developed some kind of stance on leadership in their own life. So if you think about who you are, what you've done and what you're doing now. What does it mean to be a leader from your perspective? Yeah, I think, you know, being a leader now has changed a little bit, you know, just even over the past year or two, as we've dealt with COVID, we've mm -hmm. seen the mur murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests. And I think prior to that, if you would have asked me the question, it would have been being able to provide stability and growth opportunities for your teams and really help them grow as individuals. Mm -hmm. Well, I still think that that's important. I think now it's a little more being a good leader is being humble, really being able to say, uh, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, or I don't know how to handle this moment and being able to be transparent and honest and listen to those team members that are around you and, and make decisions based off of sometimes their guidance rather than your own, especially when you don't know what's going on. That's so well said. And it's interesting because you were, uh, our, on our first episode, like our very first podcast and so much has changed not just for you or for me, but in the world since then. So that humbleness and being humble and not, not really, or being able to say like, I have no idea, but I, I, I want to learn or I want to figure it out together or we'll learn as we go along. That's a huge, huge skill for leaders. Not one that's easy to develop necessarily. Do you have any thoughts on like why that can be really tough for people? Well, I think it is a big culture shift, especially, you know, in America and Canada where we have, you know, fairly similar cultures in corporate uh, offices where CEOs and presidents have been at the top of the pyramid and they've been able to have egos. And we've all supported that along, you know, with our growth of these companies. And for them, it is completely switching the way that they handle things or the way that they present themselves, where it used to be the infallible CEO. And now it is the very fallible, very transparent very open and honest CEO. So it's really a paradigm shift in the way that they're presenting themselves. Um, so I think it's going to be tough, but I think the more research that comes out about the companies that really have diverse and inclusive leadership are the ones who have a culture of curiosity and a culture of learning. And I think as leaders see that and they see how some people are being really effective in the space, it makes it a little easier to change. It's always hard to be the first one <laughs> as you see totally. the other leaders changing. Then you're like, oh, OK, that's how it's done. I see how I can well, do this. Like Totally. And that that being the first one, it's easy to be the first one or it's hard to be the first one. But it's easiest. It's easy to be like the 60th one. And then also to like. 
but to just do it on a surface level because there's been like 50, 59 other ones that went ahead of you and, and did the deep work and did this. And then you're like, oh yeah, we're like that too. And we're, we're curious and humble. Uh, and I want to get into that in a little bit because that is a little bit of my like cynical side as being like a guy came up in punk hardcore. I kind of look at business and like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. But let's get to that in a second. Uh, what I'd love uh, if if you could share with everyone is I know I, I talked about it in the intro, but because your role is so, so important, so crucially important and because I know who you, I know you as a person and I know how seriously you take these things. Could you share with all of us like, what your role is today and what that really means in practicality from a day to day. Yeah. But then the second part of that I'd love to hear is like, how have you applied that like humble, like, Oh crap, I don't have the answers mindset to that. Cause I think that's probably such a huge part of how you, how you carry that. So let's start with the role. And then I'd love to hear that second part. Yeah. So my role is a diversity equity and inclusion manager. I handle one of the really large organizations at Amazon currently. Um, so it's a team of about 40,000 people globally. So it's a large team. On the day-to-day, what that means is looking at our data, seeing where we have the biggest gaps and opportunities, setting goals to try to solve those opportunity spaces, and then tracking that on a regular basis with our leaders sometimes working with them directly on driving those programs that we think will move the needle on those numbers or supporting them. Sometimes it's more acting as a consultant for them where they have somebody who could do the work. They just don't know if this is the right way to do it or this is the right way to word it. Yeah. So I am in dashboards a lot, looking at data and like digging into it too, which is a lot of fun, you know, because you can look at surface numbers that doesn't always tell you the whole story. Sometimes you have like dig in three layers to figure out what's actually going on or where to make that change occur. So, um, yeah, that's a lot of what I'm doing just in my day to day. And so how does the, having that kind of like humble mindset, like I I actually don't have the answer at all here. How does that play into, into this role? A lot of it is saying, we don't know what the solution is to the problem. And it could be to our leaders, to our vice presidents and senior vice presidents who say, we have an attrition problem. How do we solve it? And just saying, you know, I'll be honest with you, there isn't a solution, you know, or there's not one solution or there's not a proven solution. A lot of times leaders will say, well, tell me what companies are doing it well, or tell me what other teams at this company are doing it well. And then just being honest and saying, nobody's doing this well right now. We're all struggling. Nobody's figured this out. Uh, We need to try things and talk to our team members and get information and then, you know, try to put stuff out there and see what sticks. Uh, But also it's being humble enough to ask the employees and get firsthand feedback because employees always look to leadership for advice and guidance. And this is the one time where we really need to flip that and say, entry level employee, what are you struggling with? How could we make your onboarding experience better? How can we make your team's culture better? And now I'm going to go try to figure out a way to do that in the best way possible. What's been personally challenging for you about this? And, and let me frame it up for you. And for anyone who, who um, doesn't know, so as I mentioned in our intro, I've known Michelle for many years, like I don't know, 20 years. Would you say 20 Pro- years? Yeah, probably. That's scary. But yes. <laughs> 
Uh, we both grew up in the punk and hardcore scene. It's interesting because like punk and hardcore is like, there's such good values that are there and those values are real. Like I do, I do believe that, that they're, that they're, uh, that they're real, but there is like a lot of kind of like fist shaking, like, you know, this is bad and that is yeah. bad. And, <laughs> and, and part of it is real and part of it's the culture and, and all this stuff. Um, you're one of the few people I know who's like real deal taking the things that we talked about in punk and hardcore and like making it happen in a corporate setting. And I'm not saying that there aren't people that you and I know that aren't, that are, that aren't doing that outside of a corporate setting. So we know a lot of people who work in social work or teachers or therapists. And so they're doing it more in a traditional setting. You're doing it in, in, in the place where the biggest pushback, the biggest obstacles, the biggest uh, challenges are like, you're literally in the fray of yeah. doing that. And so there's some real stuff, including looking at data, data and like making sense out of that. So what's been the most challenging part of this for you? Uh, I think there's two things that I find really challenging in this space. Mm -hmm. One of them is just the complexity of how we're trying to build solutions. Mm -hmm. There's no right answer to anything we're doing uh, as we're discovering. Uh, because if one group of people says, I want you to fix this by doing this, you will have an equal group of people, often in that same marginalized community, who say, that is actually not how I want you to do it. That's the opposite of what I want you to do. I want you to do this other thing. So there is no solution. And that is really difficult. You know, you always want to say, this is the thing we need to solve for. Here's a potential solution. Now let me figure out how to get that executed. And in this space, you have to try either two different things or 10 different things, or just acknowledge that this isn't going to be the solution for everybody. But let's try to get this out the door because it's going to be a solution for a small group of people. And I don't want to exclude that small group of people just because they're a small group of people. So I'm just going to do it. And then try to figure out a way to communicate it to everybody else who is then going to be mad that we're doing it. Yeah. yeah. Because there's no solution to the issue. I mean, even, yeah. you know, I'll acknowledge the fact I am a white woman working in the diversity mm -hmm. space. Mm -hmm. If you read a group of articles or bloggers, you will say, you will hear some opinions that are, we should not have white people as part of the conversation because they've always had their voices heard. We should let the marginalized racial identities lead this conversation. And then you have the other group of people who are saying, we're the ones who have been doing this work all of our lives. We need the white people to go drive this so we could go do other things. Yeah, <laughs> like I want to yeah. be the engineer. I don't want to have to work in diversity. Mm -hmm. Like the white people made this problem, let them solve it. So right. even just in me existing, <laughs> I have some people who love it and some people who hate it. So it's just, it's a really complex area. Well, and so well said, Michelle, like, again, like this is such, it's so, whew, it's, it's just, uh, there's a lot of stuff here that is like 
I mean, it's complex and everyone can see it's complex, of course. But then like, if you just get a little bit under the surface, you're like, whoa, it's so much more complex than I even realized. Yeah. And, and the way that you just framed that up is so eloquent and so well thought out. And so also just so compassionate because like you realize it's like, it's difficult for everyone, yourself included. So that's that you'd said there, there are a couple of things. That's one thing. What's, what's the other thing? Yeah, I think on that notion, uh, and something I mentioned earlier, is that there isn't a lot of proven case studies Mm -hmm. or proven effective work in this area. Mm -hmm. So we are working with leaders who are used to being the top in sales. They know how to sell things online. They know how to sell things in a store. And they know what other stores are doing it well. And there are case studies. So then when they come to me and say, well, how do we solve retention? Uh, I can't say, well, this is how these other three companies did it. I also have to note that there's not going to be one solution for us internally. We're going to have to do 10 things. And then it's really difficult to do like a correlation causation analysis on it to say, did this really drive an effect? And at what point? Because a lot of these are really long-term projects, which you think for a company like Amazon, we started off in the online space, just selling books. And this was when at that point, Jeff Bezos knew nobody is going to be buying stuff online for a long, you know, for a very long time. So we need to start investing it now. We probably won't see revenue for 10 years. So he had that long-term perspective. Business leaders have a hard time realizing that in the the diversity space. Mm -hmm. So if I invest in new employees now, I'm not going to see them promoted in a year. I'm not going to see them as a VP in a year. I'm going to see that in 10 years. Mm -hmm. So yes, I know you want me to show you like quarter over quarter how we're progressing, but I'm not going to be able to do that. (laughs) Like I really need to get these programs in place now and I will show you results in 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard to swallow for leaders that they can't see immediate results. Yeah. One of the things that I, I get asked a lot, well, not so much now, cause I'm, I'm not on the front lines of coaching as I used to be a, my, my team handles that. But one of the things I used to get asked a lot about where people would say, well, how do I know it's going to work? And I'd be like, well, I don't know. It's a complex, complex set of factors of whether or not something works. What, especially one of the things that people would say and, and do say to our company now, and I'd say any coaching company is like, well, how do you measure success? And my flip always to them is, well, how do you measure it? Do you have an internal metric for how you measure your talent development or how you develop any, any, uh, how you measure any development? And the answer is almost always no, or they go to some like really basic, basic tool. And I always laugh, like people want the proof of the success of something to be on the person who's like bringing the, the ideas and generate, trying to generate the change. It's like, well, you run the business. Shouldn't you have the tools and that idea of change and that change should be something that you can just like here's a bar graph or here's this thing. It's like, that's not how human beings or society works or teams work. Uh, It's trying things, uh, seeing what happens, like applying pressure, educating, building up skills, building up, uh, you're focusing on uh, honing abilities. It's a really intricate thing where there isn't some typical, well, where change isn't super quick and it isn't apparently measurable very easily by by, uh, data crunching. 
So it's a very complex thing and you're doing it on such a large scale that it, it, it's, I would imagine from day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year, it can be perhaps daunting to have people have those types of expectations of you. It is. Uh, you do get used to the conversations though and trying to consistently push back and then equally still try to drive change. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've been pushing a little more heavily in the last year or so is talking to leaders about what they actually have control over. Mm-hmm. In reality, they have control over everything. They are the leaders of a giant corporation. <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah. But some things feel a little more out of control, like retention. Mm-hmm. Because it's so ambiguous, there could be 10 different things driving it. And they don't feel like they could make a change on it. But if I say, well, hey, let's look at who you have coming up for promotions in the next four quarters. And let's look to see if you have gender equity and racial identity equity across those percentages. Because that is something they could change. They could go talk to managers and say, hey, shouldn't we have this person coming up for promotion soon? Let's look at our annual reviews. Who are our top leaders in annual reviews? Why aren't they listed on the promotion slate for the next year? That's something that they could feel. (laughs) They could go send out a couple emails and see those numbers change within weeks. So that's some of the stuff where I tried to really get the leaders to take action on Mm -hmm. because they could feel it. Yeah. One of the other things we did was we rolled out uh, inclusion training across the company. So I had the rates of the completion of it, like who took it, who didn't take it, who's still overdue. And just giving that to the leaders and saying, look at the people who haven't taken it. Could you please go reach out to them and make sure they complete it by the end of the week? That was something that they were like, yes, I know how to do that. I absolutely can. And then all of a sudden you see the numbers change the next week and you could send them a nice email to say, hey, thanks for taking action on that. Your completion rates went from 93% to 97%. Thank you. And building on those successes then, I think is going to give them a little more control over the space or at least a feeling of control. Getting there's tough. Something and, and like not having that like, you know, it's like, I don't know if you're like a, if you're, if you have, if you have a job that has like clearly completed tasks, it's easy to, at the end of the day to be like, oh yeah, I got all this stuff done. And, and it doesn't mean you love or hate your job or whatever it is. It's just that like a a job, like the one that you have seemingly you have to create so much more of your own sense of accomplishment as you're getting things done. Cause it's such a huge thing that you're doing and there's not clear wins every day. Yeah. Yeah. Or you just need to set goals along the way because you're going to have a really big, ambiguous end goal. Mm -hmm. You know, like I would love to put myself out of work one day, Mm -hmm. but, you know, in the meantime, I will say, okay, let me see if I could double the number of executive leaders uh, who are black this year, you know, in our director and vice president positions, because I could put a number on that. It's a one year goal. I could actually get it done. Well, and there's something to be said about like, you know, when uh, I was about to say, remember when, but we wouldn't remember this, how cathedrals uh, would be built in, in Europe in the, you know, in the olden times and the people who designed it were knew when they weren't going to be alive for its completion. And the people who started building it knew they weren't going to be alive for it to be completed. It's the idea that 
you're starting something so big that does have an end in sight. That's the intention of starting it is that so it's completed, but you know, you're not going to get there in your time. And so those like smaller goals that you're talking about and like creating meaning out of those, I'd say for anyone trying to make any like real change, it's like, you got to drive your own meaning, like creating meaning, hitting goals that are meaningful to you, not just goals, but goals that are meaningful to you seem to be very, it seems to be very important about being able to uh, maintain momentum with something like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really interesting to go back and think about where all of this started and how long ago it started and, and how far it's come, you know, like on a more basic level, uh, both of us are non meat eaters and haven't mm -hmm. been for a very long time. And mm -hmm. just looking back to where we were in the 1990s and how obscure Ugh. that was and how difficult it was to us for us to get meals anywhere. And now we could just go to Burger King yeah. and get something to eat. Uh, and even before the nineties, you know, talking about the hippies in the sixties and there were conversations about this even 200 years ago about not eating meat. Those people mm -hmm. thought were lunatics in their societies. Yeah. <laughs> and now this is just every day for us. Like you could say that you're vegan or vegetarian and mm -hmm. it is commonplace. Nobody looks yeah. at you and says, could you define that for me? Like they did. Mm -hmm back in the nineties when I was trying to get a salad at Denny's. <laughs> I know. I know. And but what's also like, we're going to use this analogy, how quickly change can ha happen, but you might not realize it in the moment. So like, think how non-delicious things were in like 1997 and how, how in like a very short period of time. So we're like 2021, that's a, like a really short period of time. How like we could literally go anywhere and have like a really legitimately delicious meal. But like, that happened. I didn't realize how quickly it was happening as it was happening. And here we are today. So that idea that something is such a, a distant island that we are like, oh, someday we'll reach it. When in reality, there's a lot of stuff that could happen if the, the right minds, the right people, the right pressure, the right in, uh, integrity is applied. I want to take a different direction, though. I want to hit on something that I think is so important about your story. As I mentioned earlier, I'm cynical and I'm very cynical about about big organizations and their intent to change. And I try and rein it in a little bit because I don't like I don't like cynicism and I don't like being cynical, but like I see companies where let's say I've encountered leaders that I actually think, hey, you've got some pretty questionable beliefs. And then the next thing you know, they're all over LinkedIn, like putting up their their things. It's like, yeah, this is plainly marketing. And you're just doing the thing you, you're being told to do by your marketing group and companies where I'm like, ah, there's some pretty questionable practices there. But that's the cynic in me. And that's me just looking at very surface level thing, failing to recognize that a company isn't one person or five people or their marketing department or even their marketing departments may be filled with wonderful people who really believe these. Corporations aren't these like, they can be these tropes, but they aren't necessarily those tropes. And you're someone who works in like legitimately like a huge corporation and you're creating actual real deal change. So I'm, I'm going to ask you a series of questions about this, if you're okay with that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So what do you say, what, what is your thought on people who are like, oh, tear the whole system down. No possible change can be made within corporate America. It's all about money. Nobody actually really cares. Uh, to a degree, I very much see where they're coming from, mm -hmm. but equally our entire society is based off of capitalism and large corporations. Mm -hmm. 
uh, I think people are understanding more now when they actually look into how, you know, intense some of this could be that if you tear it all down, you won't have food, you won't have a place to live, you won't have land to build on. Uh, you know, these are things that are all part of the, you know, the capitalistic nightmare that we are often living in. Right. Um, you, I mean, you'd have to go through something absolutely horrific, like, a, you know, series of natural disasters that society is completely burned down to the ground and has to be rebuilt again by the hundred remaining humans. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not going to be able to just voluntarily break down government corporations worldwide, get all the governments globally to agree to do this. <laughs> it's just unrealistic. You know, it's not, uh, you know, I would love to say like, yeah, we'll just start anew, but it's not going to happen. You have to start from where you're at having the infrastructure you have in place and change it along the way. You can't just rip it all down. Okay. Interesting you say that, though, because I'm not saying that's the only conversation out there. But, you know, I'd say in the last two to five years, you know, there's there's a lot of conversation like the whole thing is corrupt and tear it, tear it all down. And and one thing that I factually know about about bo both you and I and, and many people who are punks who are also part of like the legit like professional corporate world, we don't disagree with that. Like, yeah, there is crazy bad stuff that's happening but like you don't just be like all right and done with that like what's well, this isn't a discharge song like i'm like it's right. things things need to change but we can't just make capitalism not exist it exists and we have to i like what you said you got to start from where you're at right yeah because i think that's often the complaint i have with uh i mean some people in our punk rock community but also some people that you know I read about on social media where it's yeah. very easy to shake your fist at something yes. when you say, okay, so what's the first thing you would do? And what are those 10 steps that you need to accomplish that? Mm -hmm. They have no idea, mm -hmm. you know, or it's not, they'd be like, we'll tear it down. Well, how do you tear it down? Tell me step to step how you are going to tear it down. Once you accomplish this what is the next thing you need to accomplish and how many things you need to accomplish before it is quote unquote torn down <laughs> yeah. and they have no idea. Well, when we think about things like I'm so, I, so I, I grew up, um, uh, my, my father is Armenian. My mother's Irish. You know, I have a, an exotic sounding name to, in, in North America. Uh, I grew up with, uh, my, my mother was the breadwinner in the family. My father was a stay at home father. So I grew up in, in a kind of an interesting way, not unique, but an interesting way for a kid uh, growing up in the eighties. And I really grew up with an idea of like pretty strong liberal views. And I remember like having, especially like, you know, I remember when I first started listening to like Operation Ivy and like, you know, I, I literally thought when I was a high school kid, I was like, I know how to end racism. Like I know exactly how we're going to end racism. I'm not even kidding. I actually thought that. And then you just get a little bit older and you're like, damn, like there's this like, you know, white kid coming up from like the safe suburb, Calgary, Alberta, thinks they got all the answers and doesn't know shit about shit. I don't know anything about the world. I don't know anything about like the pressures that keep things in place and why good people do bad things and bad people do like good people do bad things and then bad people do good things and all the complexities. So 
that idea, like when like one group of the population is like, tear it down. And the other one's like, it's more complex than that. This, this is this like trope that we're all stuck in. It's the Dunning-Kruger effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like this well, is a well-documented, you know, cognitive bias that we all have. When you're young or naive, you feel like you know everything and you have all the answers. And then the more you know, the more you know you don't know. <laughs> right. And you realize you how much more complex it is. Yeah. But you still want that thing. And again, that's why I like your story is so interesting to me because you're one of the few people I know who's from like, again, the punk scene, but you're actually in the fray. And I'm not taking away from any of our friends or anyone that we know that's, let's say, going to social work or, or therapy or, or frontline work or any of that. Cause it's all super, super important work, really, really valuable. You're doing like a, a, the work in the corporate world where like this is like you're the person who's in the mix and actually seeing the stuff and hitting it face on. You have a certain set of skills that come from punk and hardcore that. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm not saying people can't get it from other places, but like you definitely got part of it, at least from punk and hardcore. So what did you learn in punk and hardcore that's helping you be in this fray and, and diligently step-by-step step make real change? Yeah. And I'm sure you've heard this a million times, but it's the DIY attitude mm -hmm. The well, somebody has got to do it. So I might as well just go do it mm -hmm. because it is easy to say, oh, I wish somebody would change that. Or, you know, I really wish somebody could go in and help those employees. Mm -hmm. But it's that person who says, all right, well, I'm just going to go help them. I haven't done it before. I don't know how to do it. Just like I don't know how to put on a show with bands that are touring. <laughs> but I'll just go figure it out. What, yeah. Like, what's the worst that could happen? I'll just go figure it out for myself and then learn from that. Do it better the next time. Learn from that. Do it better the next time. So I think that DIY attitude has served me really, really well in this because nobody knows what they're doing. There isn't a roadmap that we could follow. So you say, all right, well, these employees are having a hard time. I'm just going to go figure out how to do it and, you know, put the pieces together, run with it, see if it works. If it doesn't, you know, I'll take it back and redo it. If it does work, I'll just build on that for next time. And this is, a, I, I think, such an important part of, of your story because this isn't what you set out to do career-wise, right? No. <laughs> my my master's is in music business. Yeah. Well, tell us a bit about your path, about like where you started to how you got here. So my uh, I went to school for communications and then got into radio mm -hmm. and then decided I wanted to go get my master's in music business. So I did that and worked in marketing for the entertainment industry for a long time in New York before I said, oh, I want to go into the corporate world. I need to expand my knowledge base. So then got a job at Oracle, worked as an account manager for many years, uh, then went over to Amazon, was managing a design team because I'd worked really closely with the designers at Oracle. So I was managing a design team, transferred into product management <laughs> so I could help with one of our software engineering teams, ended up being a manager of engineering and product management at Amazon. Mm -hmm. And at the same time I'm doing all of that, I was also on the board of Women in Music back in New York. When I went to Amazon, I was the president of Women at Amazon. I was trying to launch initiatives to really support 
like gender and racial identity diversity within my team and within my larger organization at Amazon. So that's when I thought I should probably do this full time <laughs> because I'm spending all my time with women at Amazon and supporting other affinity group networks and then launching all these other initiatives related to diversity. Because going back to what we were talking about in the DIY aspect of things, nobody was doing them. So I was like, yes, I can manage an engineering team and launch a sponsorship program. And I'll launch this initiative to diversify our interviewers. Like, I'm just going to do it because no, I'm looking around. Nobody else is doing it. So I'm just going to go do it then. I'm not going to stand by and just keep pointing my finger saying, I wish somebody would go do this. I just go do it. So I did it. And then use that to transition into a diversity role full time at the company, which I've been doing uh, for, you know, three and a half or four years at this point. Uh because, yeah, I just don't, I can't handle when people say like, oh, I wish somebody would go do that. <laughs> just, just do it. <laughs> well, no, but this is the thing. And like, but the also doing it in, I guess, kind of like, again, you're like working in one of the biggest organizations in the world. Like it's a huge deal to put yourself in that position. And when I say that, I don't mean to like, in that position, congratulations. I'm like, no, like that's a serious position to be in and tons of responsibility the well-being and opportunity and and hopes and dreams of not just people now, but many people to come rest on the success of what you and your colleagues are doing in this world. It's like a really, it's a really difficult challenge to take on. And why is your friend and also someone that I, that knows you professionally as well? Like, I'm so proud of you, but I'm very inspired by it. So we think about that idea, just like, so much of it goes back to like that kind of punk idea, DIY, do it. And like, you know, you screw up, you, you figure it out, you kind of analyze things, you're figuring, you're, you're figuring these things out. One of the things I've seen in the punk world uh, a lot is this idea of kind of playing it small. And what I mean by that is like, we have these like incredible ideas, you know, like vegetarianism, veganism, you know, like staunch anti anti-racism, like ideas about how like we should, really be take like how we should be transforming our society but they we kind of keep them there in that punk scene or maybe we kind of take them on personally yeah. but the transition of of taking those ideas and like not playing small with them where they're contained and they fit well with our our, our community but actually playing big and trying to create real change that's not like a super common thing that we could say like across like people who go out and into into the the business world and i'm not saying there's none of that but you're one of the few people who's really really trying to trying to do that real deal what do you think what do you think keeps people from trying to like play it big around creating social change like that but within the professional sphere you know that's a really good question i think there is probably some of that fear that i don't know how to do it so i'm going to do something i know how to do and play it safe mm which I understand, especially if you're trying to pay your bills, because as much as we hate this capitalist system, sometimes we have mortgages and we have bills to pay. And totally. sometimes it comes down to like, you just got to get that stuff done and you don't want to take that risk. But I do think, or maybe it's just the optimist in me that I hope that most people in the punk and hardcore scene, even if they're doing something very different, still have that in the back of their head and they're doing it in their own teams at least they might not be doing it at the company level but they're going to do it within their own team 
So, you know, like what I was doing back when I was running the engineering team and I was trying to do things like run training sessions on unconscious bias or setting up roundtables so people, people could voice their opinions to each other. I didn't do it for the company. I just did it for my team of, you know, 13 people. And nobody would have seen that otherwise, other than those 13 people. But it was something I was personally passionate about. And I wanted to make sure that all 13 of my team members equally felt included and, you know, respected as team members. So I think that there's probably a lot more people out there than we give credit to who are trying to incorporate some of this in their day to day. And it just might not be big and visible. Like I have a job title telling me that I do this, (laughs) but I hope some other people are just, you know, trying to incorporate it or have those conversations or deal with their family members who don't believe the same things that they believe. And like, that's a difficult fight too. Like that might even be more difficult than trying to do it in a company is just trying to fight against your own parents and try to convince them to think a little differently about some important topics. <laughs> well, totally. I'll, I'll speak from my own role, like growing a company. It's, I, I mean, it's weird. Cause like, I don't want to get into this, like, Oh, like, you know, poor, poor me with my, my company that's, you know, doing well, I can't build a, I can't build my team the way I want, but it's like, it's, it's, Growing a team that is uh, both diverse and inclusive requires a lot of thought and intention. And like, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea. I ask for advice constantly and I screw up as much as I do, as I do well. And it's, there have been times where I feel like the worst, like I'm like, I am such an idiot. I can't believe I missed that or I didn't do that or I did do that. Or I feel humiliated. Like, I'm like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed right now. And there's other times where I'm like, heck yeah, that's that I feel so good about that. And for me, it's like, I got to surround myself with like, with people who can like really point out where my bias is and where I'm screwing up and where I'm not doing right. But it's hard. I have a team of 14 people and it's like so hard. I can't imagine doing it with like this giant company. And so as we scale up, we try and be thoughtful of it, but it's like really, really hard. And honestly, it's like, it's scary being, I, I can say, you know, I came from a, a family that, um, you know, again, like, you know, mixed marriage, exotic name. Like I, ex- I experienced a lot of stuff growing up around, uh, around coming from an ethnic based family in, in Calgary, Alberta, but I don't know shit about shit when it comes to building a company like this. So scaling up is like really scary. And I, I have to push myself to like embrace, like I have to push myself to get super uncomfortable and it's, uh, it's uncomfortable. It sucks. It's scary. I don't want to screw up. Yeah. And, but I think being open to it and just knowing that you will screw up and that you want feedback from people to tell you about how you screwed up. Mm-hmm. will make you a better leader than a leader who says, I've got this all figured out. Just follow my lead. <laughs> and then isn't open to that honest, critical feedback because we're all growing and learning. You know, yeah, yeah. we weren't having some of these conversations, you know, when I was growing up or even when I was in college. Mm-hmm. These aren't things that were talked about in my education And now I'm sure would be part of any of those curriculum in any of those universities because we're just in a different world and a different culture right now than we were, you know, 20 plus years ago. 
and we're going to be in a really different place in 10 years from now and 20 years from now. So you just got to be open and willing to change and, and have that flexibility to adapt and grow as a human being. We do. But going back to your story, though, like real specifically, you know, because this has always kind of been a part of your career trajectory, even though you weren't necessarily officially doing it before, you're kind of you're always doing that stuff. But it doesn't seem like it was like a decision on your part, like a conscious decision, like I'm going to do this. It's more just like, well, of course, I'm going to do this. Like there wasn't like a and please correct me if I'm wrong. Did it take courage to do it? Or was it just something that you naturally did because of course I'm going to do this. It's the right thing. I think it was more of that. Well, of course I'm going to do it. Even when it came to women in music, mm-hmm. you know, which was that the first board that I was on for a nonprofit, that was just, I just looked around me mm-hmm. and I saw how few women there were in the industry. Mm-hmm. And here is a group of women professionals who are starting a nonprofit of course I want to be part of it. It's just a way for me to connect with other women and try to grow and really fight for something that I was passionate about, which was gender parity. Um, so yeah, it definitely was a, of course I'm going to go do this. And then at Amazon, when I saw needs popping up where, well, that's a really crazy thing that we have an interview of six people six interviewers, but only one of them is a woman. Mm. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. Mm. I'm just going to go fix that. <laughs> right. It, it isn't of course. Yeah. So there's this pragmatism to it. And there's also like a belief like, well, yeah, of course I should go do that. Like here's the problem. And of course I should go do that. But I don't think that's common. And I think a lot of people can be like, Ooh, that's not good, but or I'm not the person to fix that. Or I don't, I want to fix it, but I don't think I can. How do we counter that side where we can say a lot of people can identify an issue, but they might not think they might not want to deal with it. I don't want to go fix it or I want to fix it, but I don't think I can. How do we counter that? I think some of it is encouraging people to make mistakes and let mm-hmm. them know that that's not going to be counted against them in their future careers. So if they're trying to get promoted or they're trying to get a raise, hey, it's okay for you to go out there and make mistakes. That's not, we're gonna encourage that. We're not gonna say you're not gonna get promoted because you made that mistake. I think that's one way of doing it. Um, And really having that culture of learning, if we really stress, you are here to learn. You are here to grow as a human being. I don't want you to come in perfect and continue to be perfect. I want you to come in as you are, give me your learned experience, and then continue learning on the job so you grow as an individual. I think that reinforces the, I could go and just try something and see if it works and see if it doesn't work. And that's okay. I'm not going to be penalized by just going and trying something. I think that it is a culture change for some companies or even just some managers to make sure that their team members know that they could just kind of go in there and do it. But I also want to acknowledge that, you know, I have the privilege of being able to use my free time to do that. I don't have any major medical issues that take up a lot of time. I don't have kids that take up a lot of time. I don't have, you know, uh, other needs that are taking up a lot of my free time. So 
I have the ability to work an eight hour day, five days a week, and then have some extra hours where I could use it to run an affinity group or volunteer at a nonprofit or run an extra project off the side of my desk. You know, I also acknowledge that I might be a little more intelligent than just an average person. So I could read a little faster. I get through projects a little faster and then I could use that spare time to do some of these other things where I know a lot of other people don't have that privilege. They might need to read things a couple times before they could comprehend it and then go ahead and, and do whatever they need to do. Uh, and that's just not an issue that I have to solve. And that's a huge privilege that I have grown up with and had this whole time and I could use it to my advantage so I could go ahead and do this extra stuff. And, you know, other people mm-hmm. just don't have those luxuries. They don't have their lug- those luxuries. And and I, I totally, I appreciate you acknowledging those for sure. And I think those totally matter. And, 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 and listen, like, I, I, and this is me not talking to you. It's me talking to anyone who's listening. Like, you know, there's a lot of different angles where, where we can say, well, and this person's able to do that because of this and totally valid around this fight. I think I'm pretty comfortable using this word of like creating just a more like diverse and equitable and like inclusive work culture. We can't have sidelines. We just can't. And like that sense of like learning, I think is one of the most powerful things I've heard on this topic. Cause like, it is so like, like, I don't want to do harm. I don't want to do harm. I don't want to screw like, you know, uh, when, when I know I've screwed up, I'm like, Oh God, Oh, I did. I didn't do that. Right. But I know I'm better. I know that the next time I do it, I'm better equipped to do it. And like, getting off the sidelines is so, so, so important here. And the thing that I want to encourage anyone listening, like, man, you know, like there are the obvious places where we can do it, which is like volunteering and not-for-profits or, or working in the social services. All those things are great. And there aren't, those aren't the only ways you can do it in this corporate job you're in. You can do it in, in any of the jobs that you're in. You can take up that fight, whether it's the main part of your job like yours, or it could be something that you're volunteering of that you're part of committees or any of those things, but got to get off the sidelines to make that happen. Anything that you want to add to that piece? Sorry, I went on a little rant there, but I think it's so important. (laughs) It is. And I really, just to go on top of what you said, even just standing up for people in the moment There are so many times where we see microaggressions in everyday life, and it's really easy to stand by, and in your head you're cringing, but you just don't say anything, and having that courage to just stand up and say, oh, I wouldn't have said it that way, or I wouldn't make that generalization, is so important, and Letting that person know who was, you know, under attack or the microaggression was addressed at, letting them know that they have support out there and it's not them against the world. It's a small group of people who might be saying or doing these things in the moment. And a lot of those people are doing it without knowing they're doing it, which I think is the other important thing that we need to acknowledge is that not everybody is malicious. So when a microaggression comes out of somebody's mouth, addressed to somebody else, they might not know it is. It could be something that 
culturally, they just heard that term being used and they didn't know that that was a bad thing. Um, you know, or a really common one we hear would be, for example, a white person asking a black woman if they could touch her hair. One, never do that. That's horrible to do. But people might not know that that is a bad thing if they haven't been socialized to understand that that's a bad thing to do. So if you see it happening, just say something like, hey, don't do that. You can touch my hair instead. <laughs> like, well, that's not appropriate. Yeah, not appropriate. And and also like the idea what you just said about like people don't have malicious intent. It, it really strikes something for me that keeps coming up as I as I hear people talk about it. Because, again, as a coach, people talk to me about a lot of things. And one of the things that I know there's a lot of anxiety about in the corporate world is being perceived as a bad person. Like I did this thing and I'm a bad person. I'm a racist or I'm a sexist and, and I didn't mean anything by it. And I'm so afraid. I'm afraid to do anything. And I keep hearing this from like, you know, kind of a certain kind of population. It's like, well, I can't do anything now. I'm going to be called this or that. And no, that's not necessarily true, but it's not untrue either that you know in a time in this time where i was very polarizing time like when you said earlier like people aren't going to be punished for making mistakes well that's not necessarily true like there's we are in a time where like a lot of terms are lobbed around quite easily and and they can be quite devastating to people and i think if we're going to be pragmatic we can say like we're in a time right now of great social change and, and in great social change that we want to see happen there's a lot of polarization of good people like i'm a good person you're a bad person I'm anti-racist, you're a racist. I'm, you know, anti-fascist, you're a fascist. And like, I understand why this thinking, I think we all understand why this thinking is happening. And we can also say in like day to day, like, you know, person X probably really didn't intend to do anything by it. And like calling them like whatever, you know, labeling them as uh, something can be very harsh. And so I think part of what we need to be focusing on and having real conversations about is like, how do we create, how do we break um, people who are just going along to get along? Like they just agree to everything. They go out of the trainings, but they're not actually changing. They're just saying, they're not saying anything because they don't want to be like attacked versus people who are actually like resisting versus people who are um, on board, but they're on board in kind of a toxic way. Like this is such an important change that I think we have to have real conversations about the complexities of human beings and how it's quite messy uh, around the subject, especially about becoming overtly polarized. Yeah, it it's really true. And I think, you know, a lot of the way I try to think about it is the treating others the way that they want to be treated and also the way that you would expect to be treated if you were in a similar situation. Mm -hmm. So if I see somebody who says something in a meeting and it gives me that cringe moment of, oh, I wish you'd just say that, <laughs> being able to address it in the moment that doesn't put them on the defense, mm -hmm. that doesn't slap a label on them, but gives it to them as a, hey, I know you probably didn't intend it, but the way that came off was this. Maybe in the future, would you mind just using this other term instead? Or maybe let's not make generalizations about a specific group. Something like that, where I think if I was in that situation and I used a term that somebody didn't like because I was ignorant of knowing what the actual correct term was, how would I want somebody to educate me so I know not to do it again? 
because we're constantly on this learning journey, which we kind of keep going back to. But, you know, one of the things that came up in the last year for me was just the term Latinx versus using Latino or Latina. Mm -hmm. And there is a huge divide, even in the community who is represented in that term as to which one they prefer. Because you have some who are saying it is the English speakers in America who made up this term Latinx as a gender neutral term. How dare you change my language? Mm -hmm. And then you have other people who are saying, yeah, we have some people in the community who identify as non-binary or other who do not want to be identified as a gender. And we need a term for them. So no matter what, you're not going to have a right answer. There isn't a right answer. So if somebody uses the term Latinx in a meeting and gets corrected and says, hey, don't use that, you should use Latino or Latina, understanding that perspective, and then knowing that in the next meeting, it could be the opposite of that. Because there isn't a correct one. But just understanding and listening to people's perspectives I think really helps people just learn more and evolve as humans to understand there isn't yes or no, or you're good or bad. It is all the areas of gray (laughs) and it depends on who you're talking to and who you're addressing and how they feel about it. And we need to just be respectful of that. Totally. Let me, let me go a little further on this because this is, this is like such an important point because like, you know, as we're, as we're speaking, I, in my mind, I've got like one part of our audience is like, hell yeah, like right on. Absolutely. And I've got another part is like, okay, where does it ever end? And like, oh, now I got to take da, 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 da. And it's like, uh, there's something I got to say. And I, I think it's super important. If someone gets defensive, that doesn't mean they're a bad person. So like when people's sympathetic nervous systems get lit up and they get afraid, their ability to access their skills and abilities less. Like, so like if, a, a normal person, if you ask them, how would you want to, how would you like to handle conflict in your life or disagreements in your life? Most people would be like, oh, like I'd want to come to a kind of accommodation or have a con- conversation. Most people would say that. I'd say the vast majority of people, maybe even all people would say that. Very few people would be like, oh, I'd want to like shut down the conversation and like intimidate someone into silence. Like no one really say that, right? Very few people. But we also see people depending on what the situation is, what the conversation is, become defensive, bristle, shut down, like whatever it is, lots of different reactions. And the idea that that person isn't on board and isn't willing to be there, I absolutely got to say, we got to challenge ourselves here. People by nature are so different from one person to another. And also just like our nervous system and our ability to be in types of conversations where we feel embarrassed, humiliated, threatened, or afraid can cause people to have all sorts of reactions in the moment. And that moment could be gone in three seconds, 30 seconds, three minutes, or three hours. But the person on the other side of that reaction probably is very willing to have the conversation. So where I'm going with this is like for anyone who's like a little weary, like, oh, I don't, I'm sick of all these different terms. Da, 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 da. And I'm sorry, I'm using my, my stupid person voice. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean that. Sorry, let me reframe this. For anyone who's weary, I get the weariness. And you know what? It's, we gotta, we gotta address it in ourselves, like to really get there in our society and and make these changes. It's tough. It's scary. And, and it's all the things. And if we want to be in an actual society, we have to do these things. And, 
and not from like a reticence, like, Ooh, who sorry, stupid person voice. Uh, <laughs> I have to do these things. I don't want to do them. You know what? I think you do want to do them. It's just one extra thing in your day. And it takes a level of intention that we, we would rather be on autopilot. We got to get off autopilot. It's just like eating healthy. It's just like running. It's just like doing anything to take care of yourself. It's that version of taking care of society and culture and community. So that's one side of it for people trying to stimulate change, the defensive reaction, all those things. You don't want to deal with it. Well, guess what? You got to deal with it because it, this life isn't Twitter. Life is life and people are going to have reactions and people are going to do things. And if we want to create that change, it's the discipline of being with people in their reaction so we can get past that three seconds, three minutes, you know, three hours so we can have the real conversation. And on both sides, there's a lot of discipline to get there. But I firmly believe to get to this place where we want to go, we can get there, but it does require this, this deep discipline for people. It does. And it, it requires the recognizing it in real life and those constant nudges to say, Hey, maybe try this instead of this, Mm -hmm. this, you know, group of people is further marginalized if you say things this way, as opposed to saying things this way. And we see even just in the last 100 years, how far we've come with gender diversity initiatives, especially in North America. And, you know, I don't have to worry about going into a workplace that anymore. And, you know, being catcalled because I'm wearing a skirt or even having to wear a skirt. I could wear jeans to work every day and nobody's going to say anything to me. And if they do, it is a very easy call to HR to say, <laughs> FYI, <laughs> this person said this and they'll take care of it. We need to get to that point with everything else. I'm not saying that we've solved gender diversity I and mean, we see what's going on in Texas right now. And, you know, we still have a lot of fight left in the fight to, to do, uh, even for women in North America, but we've gotten there with these continuous trainings, items in the media, movies, articles, educational things where we say, Hey, women don't want to get hit on the butt every time they walk into an office and no, she doesn't need to make you coffee because she's not your secretary. So now we could move on top of that and go tackle something else and, you know, try to get more women in the boardroom and in CEO positions uh, because we've taken care of that other piece. And that is just part of the corporate conversation right now. We need to get there with everything else, though, too. We're not there yet. Totally. And this goes back to something earlier when we talked about capitalism. It's like, tear down the system. It's like, well, sexism shouldn't exist. Well, yeah, right. Absolutely. Neither should racism. Neither neither should homophobia or transphobia. And none of these things should exist, but they do exist. So like, this is the discipline. Like it is the discipline of people trying to like course correct things that have developed over thousands of years. We're trying to course correct them within dozens of years or you know like i guess like a hundred years whatever it is but we're we're not going to be there to see the cathedral get built but what can we do today to make those differences absolutely even just to make it a little better you know thinking about people with disabilities if they're in a wheelchair now all sidewalks standard have cutouts in them it's Mm -hmm. part of federal law i know in america i'm sure it is in canada too It's just a standard now. It doesn't mean that we've solved disability rights, but we've made things just a little better for a group of people. 
So we could keep doing that. We could keep making things a little better for a marginalized group of people that we marginalized and we could take that action to try to fix it and just make life a little easier for the rest of our human beings. And I'd like to see the cathedral built one day. (laughs) I I mean, I'm not saying I'm like looking forward to dying before this stuff is done. Like I want it done, but I I also want to be pragmatic of, of, of how things change. All right, Michelle, this has uh, been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming back on the show and so great to have you back on our first guest to, to now, uh, what episode is this, Patrick? Oh, we don't know. It's in the seventies, I think, or something. <laughs> However, as we're closing off, I got three questions for you. Um, so the first is when you are in a time where you're like, Oh God, this is, this is grim. I, I need a little inspiration. What's three bands you go to for inspiration, three bands, three records, whatever you want. Uh, I always put the Beatles on because they will get me out of any bad mood. I've been listening to them since I was a born. I'm named after a Beatles song. So that's a really easy way to just like pull me out of a funk. I could always listen to the suicide file Mm. and just yell about something for a while, knowing (laughs) that we've been yelling about this for 20 years, because that's Mm -hmm. how old a lot of those records are. Mm -hmm. And just that realization of this isn't new. Mm We're still yelling. We, we're mm-hmm. still acknowledging that these are problems. Uh, and I think my third one might be Rape Brigade, just because that's mm-hmm. another one I could just yell, uh, like yell and mosh around the room to and just let out the aggression. Right Brigade. Right Brigade. Oh, my God. That's a deep. I got to tell you, I, I mean, I, I love Right Brigade. What a what an EP. Yes, exactly. Uh, the drop off, the drop off to the LP was pretty, pretty, pretty noticeable. Right. Yeah, the EP is where it's at, but there's no way that you could just sit still and be like zen and calm and just have it on in the background. You can't. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. No. You no, have to like no. pound your fists against the table and and jump around and yell. You have to. Uh, the Right Brigade EP is an impossible to sit still to record. You have to be doing something when you're listening to it. And when you're done, it's the most cathartic end. You're just like, okay, I'm back to being a human again. I could go <laughs> sit at my computer and, and type that email. I'm done. <laughs> All right. So the next, uh, the next question is, um, if you're going to say for yourself, what helps you keep focus on the long game? How do you keep focus when you're trying to create the level of change and the intensity of, of change that we're doing? How do you keep focus on the long game? It's really putting together small actionable things and acknowledging when they get done or launched because it's really hard to visualize the long game. And if you just think, I'm literally not doing anything until 50 years from now, and then I'll see what I've gotten done it's really hard to stay motivated. So for me, if I get three things done a day and it's all right, well, I I launched a new dashboard with data that now my team members can use and they could use that to help make change in their departments. I celebrate that win Mm -hmm. with myself, even just if it's in my notebook, I just, you know, crossing it off and they're like, this is great. I'm going to go make myself lunch now. (laughs) 
well that actual that act of crossing something off in your in your notebook like literally like crossing it or actually checking a box there's all, all sorts of psychological benefits to that uh, it's a sense of completion and i totally recommend to people to like literally write things down and when they're done cross them out uh, there's a reward system involved in that all right final question you know like i said at the beginning of our of the show uh, people come for all sorts of or come from all sorts of different backgrounds to this show but they really do come to hear about leadership and to hear about inspirational people who are making an impact in the world so based on our whole conversation what do you want to leave our audience with when it comes to to really making a change and helping helping make that impact that's noticeable this is going to sound simple, but it's actually really, really critical and important. Everybody needs to show direct and specific gratitude to the people around them, especially their coworkers, be it people under them, peers to them, leaders. If somebody does something good, just, hey, thanks for backing me up in that meeting today. Or that was a really great email you put together. Thanks for doing that. Those little acts of gratitude mean so much to those individuals. And I think it is that overall culture of respect that you are building. And that's what people want. You could have all the celebrations all day long, pride parades in every single locale. But if people don't feel respected just in their day to day, it's not going to really help. We really want to build that and I think more people just need to show gratitude rather than criticism. So just say thank you more and be specific about it to everybody. (laughs) Well, on that note, incredible advice. And Michelle, thank you. Thank you for like, I know authentic desire to create change and also the fact that you're actually like pragmatically actively doing it. So thank you for that. And also thank you for just being a wonderful person and a great friend. And thank you. Thanks for having me on. Mm-hmm. Thanks for awesome. being my friend for 20 years. <laughs> 20 years. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everyone. So uh, and I'll see you all in the outro. And again, Michelle, thanks so much for having us on there. Uh, Spencer, drop the beat. That was an awesome conversation. You know, like that idea of being in the mix, like, Creating change can happen a lot of different ways. And again, I'm so supportive of all the different ways it's going to happen. But you know what? Like we live in a society that is ran, that is, I don't know, ran, arguably you could say ran by huge corporations. Like at least the economy is like propped up by that. And people need to be in the mix making this kind of change. And when I think of people who are in really challenging roles, who are there doing the good work and who are capable of doing it. Michelle's a person I think of. So again, huge gratitude to Michelle. And you know, everyone, I I think it's very easy to kind of be like, it should be like this, it should be like that. Or what's that person doing working at this company and doing this and that? Of course, great, I get it. And these companies exist, people work there and the people who work there are deserving of having a fair and equitable and inclusive environment. If we're not going to do the work and be the people who work in those companies, the least that we could do is, you know, maybe not just be like pointing fingers and saying how things should be. Instead, let's engage in like a real dialogue, you know, get behind it. Let's talk about what we're afraid about, what we're angry about, where we're really at with things. And if we do that, if we're willing to be vulnerable and listen and learn and be humble, then we're going to find a way. But we only do that if we do it together. 
So as we're closing off, I want to remind everyone we're produced and edited by Spencer Priest, recorded by Patrick McKechnie, and our design is by Tammy Levy. So with that, I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. Beyond.